It is Easter Sunday, the high point on the Christian calendar. And it is a glorious celebration, the hinge on which our entire faith is swinging, this empty tomb. I think that we live in a culture today where it's safe to say that Christianity is viewed as one of many faiths. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't professed Christian faith, you're exploring or you're, you're searching, you have questions. And from your point of view, it would seem that there's just many faith options and Christianity is one of them. I remember being in high school and sitting at a table with a bunch of my friends who were from different faiths. It was really a, a wild situation as I whenever reflect back on it. I have a friend, his name was Phnom. Phnom was a Buddhist. My friend Anil, Anil was a Muslim. Ben was a Jew. I was a Christian. My friend Doug uh, was not, a person of non-faith. You know, um, It sounds like the beginning of a fantastic joke, right? A, a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, and a Jew, and an atheist all go into a bar together. They're all immediately evangelized by a convert to CrossFit. He's trying to bring them. Uh, but we, we think about it, and uh, it seems like, you know, it's just one of many, many kind of faith options and choices. Jesus Christ didn't talk about a, a way to God. He, he claimed to be God. And we live in an interesting time, in a, t- a time of post-truth, where we are very uncomfortable with exclusive claims, and uh, very uncomfortable with the idea of someone saying, well, this is absolute truth here. And so, in great irony... We are absolutely certain, you know, that there is no absolute truth. And that exclusive claim is, is true. This is the interesting time we live in uh, as we deal with these paradoxes, as we all grapple with, you know, what is true and what is real. Today's text is John chapter 20. It is the, one of the gospel writers' accounts of the resurrection. I'm going to read the whole chapter in just a minute. And we're going to just revel in what this text says about this resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, And really, we're going to explore two things as we consider this text. We're going to explore the reasons why we should believe this is true. And then we're going to sit back and marvel at the implications of the good news that it is true. John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, so she ran and She went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, They've taken away the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen clouds lying there, but he didn't go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw and believed. And as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their houses, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped in to look at the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing, 
But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples, they were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And now Thomas, the one of the twelve, called the twin, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails, and I place my finger in the marks of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood with them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand at my side, place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Now our Christian faith has a lot of tangible blessings and benefits that we can enjoy every day, that we can, benefits that can be experienced. But Christian faith is not founded on experience. Many of us in this room, we know what it's like to look into the future and it feels like a fog because it's uncertain. Whether, whether it's that fear that grips our hearts as we look at the uncertainty of our employment, or the fear that grips our hearts as we look into the uncertainty of life on campus, or what we're going to do after life on campus. We know what it's like to look in the mirror after getting a, a report from a doctor that there's something going on our, inside our bodies that they don't know about or they can't do anything for. We know what it's like to sit in a funeral and grapple with how fragile life is. We all know what those feelings are like, and we know as, as Christians, there's many stories, we know the experiential blessing of going to God in those moments and having a peace, a strength, a hope that is enjoyed and experienced, that is very empowering and strengthening and recalibrating. We know this. And yet our faith is not founded upon those kinds of experiences, even though they're blessings that are true. Our faith is founded on a very specific event in human history. We look back on this empty tomb and we say, because that happened, because that's true, Everything else is true. That's the great hinge, the empty tomb, that the Christian faith is swinging on. And so as we explore 
John chapter 20 this morning, here's how I would explain today's sermon in a sentence. It would be this. The resurrection is historical and hopeful. It's promising a future that is satisfying and certain for all those who trust in Christ. So how is it historical? Well, history records that Christ was crucified on that Roman cross, 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, put in, the, put in that empty tomb. The Bible records that we just re- read that text. But there are other texts outside of the, bibl- of the biblical canon that speak to this empty tomb. Roman history speaks specifically to this. In 64 AD, after uh, Rome was burned and Nero blamed the Christians for it, there was a Roman historian named Tacitus, and this is what Tacitus wrote. And I quote it from his annals, uh, reading 1544, for those of you that want to fact check me. Uh, Christus suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius, the hands of Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out in Judea and even in Rome. That's Tacitus talking about Christus, the Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but then there was this mysterious superstition that's checked for the moment. What could that mysterious superstition have been that was checked for the moment? Well, we know there was the unlikely partnership of Rome and the Pharisees that said that they stole the body, and this is precisely what Tacitus is referring to. There's not, later, 30 years later, 94 AD, Flavius Josephus is another Roman historian, and he was not a Christian, but Josephus writes this, and I quote this from his Antiquities as he writes on, the, on Jewish history. Josephus writes, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought these surprising feats. He was Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day he appeared to be restored to life. And this tribe of Christians has not disappeared. So the resurrection controversies only exist because it's a historical fact that the tomb is empty. Nobody in human history is disputing the fact that the tomb was empty. And it is the hinge of our Christian faith that we point back and say, if that happened, then it's all true. Even the things I can't grapple with are true. Even the portions of scripture that I'm not sure I like or agree with or or want to bend my knee to must be true. Because if the empty tomb is true, then there is a God and that means it's not me. And I have to grapple with this. And so this burial of Jesus Christ in this tomb that we, that we just read about, it was Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. It was very public. Everybody knew Rome had sealed the tomb and they were guarding it 24-7. And so when Tacitus says there's this mischievous superstition that broke out, and referring to the resurrection, he's writing about it in antiquity. And, of course, the theory was that the body was stolen. But let's just think about that, think about that conspiracy cage match for a minute. In the left corner... We have Rome, totalitarian regime, ruling from 27 BC for over a thousand years to 1453 BC. And in the right corner, 11 terrified fishermen hiding behind locked doors, scared for the lives that they're going to be crucified next. We just read the text. Mary tells them, and they're like, what? And they're hiding, and the doors are locked. And then Jesus comes, and they're like, what? They, they don't, they're, not, they're not expecting it. They're not expecting it at all. They're terrified. 
They're not, it's not like Jesus' 11, where they're like sitting around, like confidently smirking and like creating the greatest hoax of the ancient world, the greatest, bot, the greatest heist of all history. We're going to steal the body. But this is the, this is the theory of why the tomb is empty, but that doesn't even make logical sense. I mean, again, I'm gonna, I talked about this on Good Friday, and it warrants repeating here. If you were trying to create a hoax, if the Apostle John, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all sat down, with some craft beer, because that's what good theologians do, to, to, to kind of come up with a really great, you know, legend for people to follow. They went about it the wrong way. We just read in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene is on the scene first. Mary is the first eyewitness. They name her. Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. What do you have to do in life to be possessed with seven demons? You've, you've done some stuff. And the Babylonian Talmud says, and this is a direct quote, better that the words of the law be burnt than given to the hands of the woman. In the ancient world, there was no dignity given to women. But what does the Bible do? It gives a stratospheric millennia, millennia ahead of its time dignity to women by naming Mary first. And not just some sort of a woman of high esteem, a woman who was possessed by demons. She goes first. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't sit down and go, you know, we've got to write this down. I don't know who's going to buy this. Let's change it. Let's not say Mary was there. Let's just let's make Peter the hero. And let's just rock this patriarchal idea of men being trustworthy. That would have made way more sense in the ancient world if you were trying to write a legend to get traction. But that's not what happened. And that's not how the Bible records it. And so we look back on this, and this reads precisely like an eyewitness account. Every time you used names, it was like footnotes. And they put Mary Magdalene right in there as a footnote. This is, a, we're, 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 this is the account, and we're sticking with this. And, you know, the other accounts talk about it differently. I didn't read Luke 24. Maybe I'll do that another Easter. But in Luke 24, it gives us this striking detail where Jesus says, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of fish. And then Luke 24 records it. And Jesus ate the fish. You know, why do you write down that kind of detail? Because it's an eyewitness account. I just imagine, you know, it's, think about it. You know, fish is a, is a good thing to eat on Easter weekend. And Jesus would know. Because it was his weekend. So he started this thing. Of having fish on Easter. So Jesus says, you have anything to eat? He eats the fish. And after he eats the fish, they write down it. Jesus ate the fish. If you read ancient um, epic literature like Homer's Iliad, the story of the Trojan War, or Hesiod's Theogony, the origins of the gods, right? When I read those books, you don't find things like, and he ate a piece of fish. Because that's not how epics are written in the ancient world. It's not, in, it's not consistent with the literary genre. You don't read, and Zeus turned to Aphrodite and said, do you have any fish? They don't, they don't read that. This is an eyewitness account. That's why it's written this way. And so we have to conclude that they weren't sitting down trying to create a legend because they went about it the wrong way. I'm going to say one more thing about this, why we believe it to be historical, why we trust that the empty tomb happened before I move on to the hope. And it would be this. If you were trying to get people to follow the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, you've got Jews and Greco-Romans. The Jews would not worship a man. They had a paradigm that wouldn't even allow them to say God's name. They wouldn't believe God was a man. So to write that God was a man is the wrong way to get Jews to worship. But yet overnight after the resurrection droves 
masses of Jews were worshiping the resurrected Christ. And the Greeks thought that the whole goal of the material was to escape the material into the, into the, the spiritual. If you, if you had a Platonic education in the ancient world, Plato rejected the, the material as being, you know, ultimate. So if you wanted a bunch of Greeks to believe your story, you wouldn't have God come back as a human. That'd be the worst idea. They're like, well, we don't want to worship that. So if Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John sat down as a bunch of good theologians with their craft beer and decided to write a legend, they went about it the wrong way, it would get no traction. The Jews would reject it because he was a man. The Greeks would reject it because he was a man. Nobody would worship the man. And yet, after the resurrection, masses, thousands, are worshiping the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it spread across multi-cultures. From, from Judea and Samaria to the Greco-Roman world to, eat, to, to Africa to Eastern Europe. It crossed cultural borders. A sociologist named Randall Collins wrote a book called The Philosophy of Sociologies and he explained how do people's paradigms change and the answer, to summarize it, is very slowly. It takes generations for people's paradigms to shift. Typically what happens is there's an outlier who says something and everybody rejects it and they, 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 uh, they reject the guy, but after generations his idea starts to get traction. Oh, well, maybe regardless of your sin, we are all image bearers of God worth dignity. Maybe we're all equal. That idea didn't happen overnight. That idea still isn't even a reality today. Uh, well, perhaps men and women are, are, have equal dignity before God. Perhaps they should be treated with equal dignity and equality in our culture. That's still not even a reality today. It takes millennia for people to change their paradigms. You think that people who were raised ever since they were kids to say God could never be a man would overnight start worshiping a man? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. The body wasn't stolen. That's what happened. 1 Corinthians 15 records that 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Christ at one time. So even if we were to argue, argue that Mary Magdalene had a hallucination, there's no such thing as group hallucinations. 500 people don't all hallucinate and see the same thing. I don't care how good you think your weed is, 500 of you are not going to hallucinate and see the same thing. That is a leap of blind faith. And so it's historical, and, that's, and, 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 and therefore it is hopeful, incredibly hopeful. The resurrection is hopeful because it speaks of, life, of death not being final. You know, there was a, a, a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, and Epicurus said, after you die, you don't exist anymore. It's, it's, it's over. So don't worry about it. And that Epicurean philosophy uh, is really underpinned the naturalistic view that we have today, right, of, of those, and you maybe be here today and would say, that's my worldview, that th there is no God. I've got a lot of questions about God. I'm really grappling with the resurrection, and I kind of feel like, yeah, after you die, you just don't exist anymore. Is that satisfying? I mean, does that, is that a satis, does that, at the core, satisfy you? That idea? The Greeks and the Romans, they, a lot of them had a, had a spiritual view that there was an afterlife of some kind. But like many of the uh, spiritual uh, views of the afterlife today in various religions, you, you, you just become a part of the universe, or you're stardust, or you're... Or you reincarnate, you come back as grass or something. The Lion King, you know, thing. Is that satisfying? See, not only is the resurrection historical and therefore hopeful, 
But it's satisfying and certain because a resurrected Jesus coming back as Jesus means a resurrected you is coming back as you. You're really you. The biblical narrative is that God is restoring everything. He is eradicating and removing all suffering and he's restoring everything. So the Greeks and the Romans are now hearing something they'd never heard before, which is why in the book of Acts they go, they listen to Paul and a bunch of them go, we'll, listen, we'll hear you again on this matter. Because the idea of a resurrection, a bodily resurrection, where it's really you, was something that they had absolutely never heard before. The eyewitnesses of the resurrection went around preaching the gospel. It was not only intellectually stimulating, in the sense that they were pinning it to an event, the empty tomb. They weren't, it wasn't just an ideology. It was, it was history. So it was intellectually satisfying, but it was also emotionally satisfying. Because it, you, you were grappling with this idea of what's going to happen to me after I die. And if the thing that makes your life the most meaningful is love and relationships and you know, all the things that we say life is really about, then death is the end of those things. Forever. And the longer you live, the more life itself is going to strip away from you forever. Everything you think is meaningful forever. And I'm not being morbid, I'm being logical. This is just logic. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say we cease to exist and you're going to ride that philosophical horse out, then you've got to ride that thing all the way out of the barn. The process of life itself is just an incremental stripping away of everything that we say matters forever. The gospel is the opposite of that. It is the restoration. It is the restoration of everything that we look at this world and we say it's joy because it's a paradox. There's beautiful and glorious things that God himself has created and he's going to restore those things. And all the stuff that, that angers you, that you see in your newsfeed, that makes you say, I hate that we exist. God is dealing with those. He is going to deal with those things in an ultimate way. In his perfect and radical justice. The cross is the intersection of justice and mercy. All of us deserve the justice of God, but the empty tomb says we're not going to get the justice of God. The empty tomb that Mary marveled at says that we receive the mercy of God, the restoration of all things. This is the glorious picture of the hope of the gospel. It's hopeful because it's historical. It's hopeful because it's true. And it's certain and it gives us assurance. It's satisfying. In verse 1, we get something marvelous. Je Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. And the Lord of creation rose from the grave to bring recreation. And in verse 1, John says something. We all, we all missed it. I missed it many times until a, another theologian brought it to my attention. In, in verse 1, it says that on the first day of the week... On the first day of the week. Now, if Jesus Christ is God, who he said he was, then that means the creator God is the redeeming God. And all of a sudden you go through John's gospel now, which I won't take the time to do, and we begin to pin and see that John is painting a picture of recreation. Creation and recreation. John chapter 1, if you go right back to the beginning of John, John chapter 1 begins like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that is meant to make us think of Genesis. And now here we are in the resurrection. It says, and on the first day of the week. What's the significance of this? On the sixth day of creation, God created man. On the sixth day of this Passion Week, Pilate says, behold the man. Sixth day of creation week, 
God creates man. Sixth day of Passion Week, behold the man. Seventh day of Creation Week, God rests. He rests from all his creative work because it's finished. The seventh day of Passion Week, Jesus rests in the grave. He rests from all of his redemptive work because it's finished. And then on the first day of the week, he rises. The dawn of a new era. The light that broke into the darkness at creation is still breaking into our darkness today. The God of creation is the God of recreation. He is restoring all things. And the creative event is like an inaugurating event. This glorious picture. In the book of Genesis, God breathes life into creation. Here, we just read it in verse 19, Jesus breathes on his disciples. Recreation. Life and new life. He breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. This radical picture of restoration. It's the assurance we have that God will restore everything. Christian faith is not an escape from the material world. Christian faith is the hope of the restoration of the material world. God created everything in sheer grace. Jesus Christ ensured that he's going to recreate and restore everything by sheer grace. In verse 12, Mary sees something very striking. She sees God's grace in a striking way. See, in the temple that they went to, there was a thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a slab the length of a man, and it had angels carved on both sides. And the priest was the only one allowed in there, and he would sprinkle blood on the seat. And here Mary comes in to the most unclean place in Israel, the tomb, which is now the holiest place in Israel, the resurrection of Christ. And here Mary comes in, and we're all Mary. We are all undeserving sinners who walk headlong into this glorious grace. She walks in, and what does Mary see? She sees the mercy seat, the ultimate mercy seat. She sees the slab, the length of the man. She sees the angel at the head and the foot, and she sees the blood stain where Christ was there, where the ultimate sacrifice was, was paid, was made. She, see, she sees it, and she beholds this picture. She goes into the tomb, and she finds this image of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sin. And so, Jesus Christ positions himself as the great high priest, as the one who he offers himself as tribute. The Bible is not a narrative about a hateful God who's determined to have someone's blood. The Bible is an epic love story about a God who loves his wayward children and he pays our ransom by shedding his own blood. The creator God, our redeeming God. And so in verse 15, Jesus appears to Mary in a garden. How fitting. And she thinks he's the gardener, the one in charge of the garden. How fitting. Because there was another guy once who was in a garden, who was in charge of the garden, who got everything wrong. And here is Jesus Christ in the garden getting everything right. There was once a guy who was in a garden who brought damnation on the whole world. And now there's a guy in the garden who's brought redemption for the whole world. Jesus Christ. The first Adam brought sin into the world by a tree in a garden. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, brings redemption to the whole world on a tree and in a garden tomb. 
It's a beautiful picture of restoration. The world that we live in, that we're all going into tomorrow, it's a paradox. Beautiful and glorious things to be celebrated. Human ingenuity, generosity, justice, mercy, wonderful things to be celebrated. And at the same time, a world full of sorrow, injustice, pain, death. Because the sin-ridden old creation still rumbles on. But the resurrection is a glorious interruption. The while the sin-ridden old creation still rumbles on, the new creation has come. And now, we have the hope that God is going to deal with the sorrow. He's going to deal with the pain. He's going to deal with the darkness. He's going to deal with the death. He's going to restore and recreate the world, and he is going to raise us from death to enjoy it. That's what the resurrection means. That the end of the story of your life is not going into a box and being lowered into the ground. Life and light in God. This is the hope of the resurrection. And as Susan mentioned earlier in the service, we are, as Christians, Easter people, living in a Good Friday world. The resurrection means that God's grace is radically good news for the church. That God's grace is doing life-changing renewal in the church. And that God's grace has an increasing impact in how we live in this city as the church. And historically speaking, when the church grasped this resurrection, it curved them outward to live radical, out, outward-facing lives of generosity. When the church grasped the glory of the resurrection, they built hospitals and universities and cared for the poor and loved their neighbor and gave their lives away with a radical liberality that the world can't fathom. Because when you know that this life is not all that there is, you are released with a great liberation for us to do the love your neighbor stuff. The love your neighbor stuff is not the gospel. Christ's grace for our sin and the resurrection, his life, his death, his resurrection, that's the gospel. And it's gripping that that propels the love your neighbor stuff. It is only the glory of God's grace that empowers us to walk out generously and liberally the commands of his law which is to love him and to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves and so the light that shone into the darkness of creation continually shines into the darkness of hearts today the gospel is not like opium that just sedates the church we just sit back and go well let's just wait until the resurrection no until the restoration no it's not opium that sedates the church the gospel is smelling salts that awakens the church and propels the church to be the church in the city because of the glory of Christ's grace and the impact of the truth of all of the, uh, of all of the resurrection proclaims. The same creator God who brought life from chaos is the redeeming God who gives you Christ in your chaos. Who here is without chaos? None of us. We've got this radical hope, the resurrection, historical, hopeful, promising a future that is satisfying and certain for all who trust in Christ. And in verse 16, Jesus called Mary to himself, and he silenced her fear with hope and peace. Her Redeemer lived. And Jesus continually calls you to himself to silence your fear with hope and peace. Your Redeemer lives.
These things are written so that you may believe that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. Amen.